This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The treatment of hemophilia has been moving toward longer periods between the dosing of recombinant factors. Now, with the advent of gene therapies, the potential of a one-time curative treatment appears to be on the horizon. But Catalyst Biosciences believes it can improve care for patients with the rare bleeding disorder with a daily self-injection. We spoke to Nassim Usman. CEO of Catalyst, about the company's approach to hemophilia, how its drugs work, and why he believes his company's pipeline may provide better alternatives for hemophilia patients. Nassim, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Danny. We're going to talk about hemophilia, protease, and, and Catalyst Biosciences' efforts to advance new treatments that may provide benefits over existing therapies. For listeners not familiar with hemophilia, what is it, how rare is it, and what's the progression of the disease? Hemophilia is a condition in which uh, the individual lacks a clotting factor. In the case of hemophilia A, it's factor 8, and in the case of hemophilia B, it's factor 9. It is considered a rare disease. The worldwide prevalence is estimated at approximately 400,000 people between the two diseases. Uh, they vary in severity. So if, you, uh, if the, the individual has very low activity, 1% to 2% of what a normal person has, they're considered to be severe hemophiliacs, they tend to bleed spontaneously. Uh, and this is a very debilitating condition because they're bleeding internally in their joints, and into their organs, and this can lead to uh, long-term joint damage, organ failure, uh, intracranial hemorrhage, death, etc. So it must be treated. If you have four to five percent activity, you're considered moderate. You will bleed spontaneously, but less frequently than a severe. Once you get into the what they call a uh, mild hemophilia, you probably don't bleed that often. Only if you do something quite. Uh, strenuous or serious, like playing football. Uh, but if you have a surgery or a tooth extraction or you're in an automobile accident, you'll probably bleed severely, not like a normal person. And of course, if you have over uh, 50%, you're considered to be quite normal. And how is hemophilia treated today? And how well controlled is the condition on the available therapies? So the way the patients are currently treated is if you have hemophilia A, which is the more prevalent form of the disease, which means you have um, a defect or a missing factor 8 gene product, 
you get factor eight. If you have hemophilia B, you get factor nine. So they first are diagnosed as bleeding, then they're diagnosed as to which factor they're missing, and the first line of treatment is to give them the replacement factor, so either factor eight or factor nine for hemophilia A or B, respectively. Those drugs are given as IV infusions right now, uh, which is a suboptimal way to treat a chronic disease because it involves finding a vein, doing a slow infusion of a drug over a certain period of time and having to do that anywhere from two to uh, two to three times a week for most of the factors that are out there. Uh, and you can imagine that for young children uh, or babies, this is a very difficult and painful way to administer a drug. And they basically have to take these infusions for the rest of their lives to control their disease. And because it's not an optimal way to deliver the drug and people, not surprisingly, don't like having needles stuck in their veins on a regular basis, um, they tend to allow their uh, factor levels to drop to fairly low activity levels, and that puts them at risk for bleeding. So when you say, you know, how does a disease progress, if you're willing to take your infusions on a regular basis, keep your what they call the trough levels, so the lowest activity level high, and you don't engage in, in you know, contact sports or heavy physical labor, you can reduce the spontaneous bleeding and keep it under control, and, and you'll be fine. But unfortunately, in real life, that's not how it works. And when they get bleeds, this leads to long-term damage to organs and joints. can be fatal if the bleed is, for example, an intracranial bleed. So there's a significant amount of uh, what they call morbidity um, associated with having bleeds over a lifetime. And it can really limit their lifestyle um, if they're not keeping up with their with their factor replacement. And then there's a third group of patients, uh, which can come from either the A's and the B's, who are getting eight or nine. And because they don't naturally have that protein, they develop what's called an inhibitor. So their replacement factor stops working. Then they have to get another treatment called a bypassing agent. Those patients are extremely difficult to manage. That's essentially because they develop antibodies against the factor? That's correct. They develop an antibody, and it's more specific than just an antibody. It's an antibody that actually inhibits the activity of the replacement factor, and that's why they, they call it inhibitor if you look it up in the in the literature. And how common is that? Well, it's... Um, and unfortunately, it's more common than anyone would like. So amongst hemophilia A patients who receive factor eight, uh, it's about 25 to 30% of all patients will develop an inhibitor at some point. Sometimes it goes away. Uh, sometimes it can be treated by giving them um, uh, intensive treatment to overcome this uh, inhibitor. Uh, and sometimes it just can't be fixed and they're on bypass for the rest of their lives. And that's a very inconvenient uh, treatment paradigm right now because the drugs for that are dosed basically every second day by IV, which is a very, very difficult way to treat a patient for life. Hemophilia B patients have a lower incidence of inhibitors, uh, more like in the 5% range, although I recently heard at a hemophilia meeting uh, that amongst untreated patients, it, it can be as high as 10%. 
Catalyst is developing what's known as protease therapeutics. This is not an unproven class of drugs. At least a dozen or so of these have been approved by the FDA. For people not familiar with proteases, what are they and and what do they do? So proteases are uh, proteins that cleave other proteins. It's the basic concept of a protease. Factor 9 and Factor 7A are proteases, so there are many proteases in nature. Uh, but those two uh, are, you know, in nature are proteases already, and they cleave another target protein, and this is what initiates the clotting cascade. So what we've done at Catalyst is we looked at the structure of Factor 9 and Factor 7A and how those two proteases interacted with other clotting factors, and using rational design created more potent versions of those drugs. So we did, you know, protein or protease engineering, made substitutions of certain amino acids to create more potent molecules. And that was important for a number of reasons. But the most important thing was because we can give a very small amount of these engineered factor 9 and factor 7A molecules, we can now dose our drugs subcutaneously. Because when you give a drug subcutaneously, you are limited by how large a volume you can inject. And because our molecules are so potent, we can give a very small injection, like insulin, human growth hormone, which are well-accepted drugs that are given subcutaneously, but we can still get those high activity levels in the bloodstream. So by using our protease engineering expertise, we were able to create potent molecules that then allowed for subcutaneous dosing and which we will now or hope will prove out in clinical trials will allow us to treat these patients chronically with a Q-dose instead of giving them an IV dose, which is difficult and painful. Do these engineered proteases have different biological properties than the natural occurring ones, or does it just allow you to increase the potency? Well, the increased potency is um, its actually a combination of effects that give you that increased potencies. Proteases are uh, molecules that have to not only recognize the substrate, the molecule that they're going to cleave and cleave it, but often there is a cofactor involved. In fact, factor eight is a cofactor. And then nature has evolved proteases to use cofactors to localize their activity, Nature likes balance. They're also inhibitors of proteases that um, keep their activity in balance. So we modified many of those properties so that the overall effect was the higher potency. So higher turnover or cleavage, better cofactor dependence, better inhibitor resistance. I think of the recombinant factors as being both difficult and expensive to to manufacture and and to use. Are there any cost advantages to to this approach? Um, Probably the biggest, they're made the same way, our proteases, they're they're made the same way recombinant clotting factors are. Uh, There may be an advantage, which we don't know yet, uh, because we can give smaller doses um, that we can give less of the material itself over a long period of time, and that may have a cost benefit. But we believe the real benefit to the patient will be the convenience factor 
and the ability to keep their trough levels high so they don't bleed. Um, and we think those are the, the, the critical advantages to for, for individuals with hemophilia. This is a subcutaneous administration as opposed to intravenous delivery. Are patients going to be dosing themselves? And if so, what is the regimen for, for doing so? Yes, absolutely. Our goal is self-administration. Um, you know, children are actually, and adults, quite adept at giving themselves insulin injections on a regular basis, sometimes multiple times a day. Children also self-inject human growth hormone as a subcutaneous injection on a daily basis. Our, our current hope is that uh, the most frequent dosing they would do is a daily small sub-Q injection, but we're also exploring uh, in clinical trials later this year to see if we could do less frequent than daily. But any of those would be a huge improvement over IV once or twice or three times a week, which is their current treatment option. This all may seem a bit counterintuitive. The trend has been towards uh, treatments that are dosed with less and less frequency, longer-acting drugs, and ultimately moving towards the potential for gene therapy, uh, a once-in-a-lifetime administration. Why would hemophilia patients find a daily self-injection a preferable course of treatment? Well, um, for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, IV, I, I think for, for those of us who don't have to regularly have an IV infusion, uh, we don't really appreciate how uncomfortable that, that is, especially in, in very young children. Uh, and a sub-Q injection is actually relatively simple and well-tolerated. Doing something on a daily basis is actually helps um, for a couple of reasons. One is compliance. You don't have to remember when. You just do it every day. It's kind of like brushing your teeth in the morning or at night, whatever you do. Um, and then in terms of factor use, usage, um, if you're giving someone a small dose on a regular basis, you actually use a far less drug over a long period of time instead of giving them a big bolus of drug when you give them an IV infusion where 50% of the drug is basically wasted because it's not it gets rapidly cleared from the system. So you're, you're kind of wasting drug uh, when you give an IV infusion. So we think that, again, having constant high trough levels and not having to go through the IV infusion process would be a benefit, even with daily sub-Q injections. And with respect to gene therapy, you raise a very good point because there's a lot of excitement about gene therapy. And uh, I think one day gene therapy will be a viable treatment option, but we believe, and I, I think others in the, in the treater field also believe, that that is something that's still a couple years off in the future. There's still many challenges with gene therapy that have to be overcome uh, before we would confidently say it's safe and we can predict how it's going to work, especially in children. In terms of the level of factor in patients, do we know how steady they are, say, compared to more traditional recombinant factor treatment? Well, from the early clinical data that we reported in February for our factor 9 candidate, CB2679D, uh, we saw 
median levels of 15% activity, which is well into the mild range and above the 12% that people believe will protect your joints from spontaneous bleeding. Uh, we saw that with only six doses, so we're fairly optimistic that uh, we're already in a good place uh, with the with the current um, dosing paradigm, but we will explore other ones. Uh, with respect to factor 7A, which we call Marzeptacog Alpha, we're in a long-term sub-Q dosing study right now, and we'll have some early results uh, in July to report on. Well, let's talk about your pipeline. What's the lead candidate? What's the indication, and, and how does it work? So the the lead candidate from a clinical perspective is the factor 7A, Marzeptacog Alpha. It's a high-potency factor 7A. It has completed a phase one study in um, hemophilia patients of using IV dosing, and we are currently enrolling a phase two study as part of a 2-3 program um, in severe hemophilia patients with an inhibitor, either A or B with an inhibitor, and they are uh, going to receive an IV, single IV dose, followed by 50 days of daily sub-Q, and the endpoint in that study uh, will be, in addition to safety and tolerability, um, how often they bleed. And in order to participate in the trial, they have to have a documented, what they call an annualized bleed rate of greater than 12. So they're bleeding at least once a month in order to enter the trial. And our feeling then is if we're giving the drug to them daily for two months and they don't bleed, that that would be a statistically significant result showing that the drug is, is having a positive effect for these patients. So that's the lead program, and we expect to dose 12 patients this year um, for that study, and then we would go to the FDA for the final uh, phase three portion and talk to them about numbers and duration uh, to, to get the drug approved. Uh, the, the number of patients may seem small to you from typical clinical trials, but in rare diseases, these are quite common. And hemophilia with an inhibitor is, is almost an ultra-orphan indication. Um, there are about 3,000 patients worldwide who get treated for this disease. So typically, you can um, get the drug registered with a trial of 40-ish patients um, to get a marketing approval. You also have a second candidate in the clinic. What's that indication, and how does it work? So that's CB. 2679D, that's our factor 9, uh, also a highly potent molecule. Uh, that's the molecule that we uh, have been testing in hemophilia B patients, so not with an inhibitor, just regular hemophilia B patients. Uh, those patients, um, we reported on six, uh, excuse me, five patients getting uh, six daily doses sub-Q. That's the one I was referring to earlier where we showed very good activity levels after only six days of dosing, and we are planning on starting a phase 2B study in the third quarter to look at longer dosing and different dosing intervals, so not only daily but other intervals every second day, every third day, to see where we can be in the range and still keep their their activity levels high. Um, 
and and that study is slated, as I said, to start in the third quarter, and we'll be reporting on the study design and endpoints and when it, we expect to get it done. Uh, in at a meeting in May, we will be talking about all the details of that that molecule. We expect both of those um, molecules, Marzeptocog Alpha and CB2679D to be entering pivotal trials or registration trials in uh, 2019. I want to ask you about one last candidate, which is preclinical. It's a, a universal procoagulant. Why is that attractive? Well, the attractiveness of that is um, the coagulation cascade is a series of reactions that occur over, you know, one molecule interacts with another one, it cleaves it, that creates something else that goes on to cleave something else, and you get all the way to the bottom and you make a clot. And in hemophilia, the defects are in the factor 8 and factor 9, as I just described. Um, factor 10A is strictly accidental numbering. The, the, the numbering doesn't mean that, you know, one cleaves two and two cleaves three is sort of the order they were discovered it, so I don't want you to be confused. But it happens to be that factor 10A is near the bottom of the cascade. Um, and uh, it's a molecule then that you could treat a hemophilia A patient with, a B, an A or a B with an inhibitor. It wouldn't matter what hemophilia defect you had. You could get your, your bleeds corrected with the 10A. Uh, it could also be used um, in normal people who don't have hemophilia and have uncontrolled bleeding. I mean, you'd be surprised how many people die from bleeding, uh, trauma, uh, et cetera, uh, that could benefit from a better molecule to, to control their bleeding. And so we think that it could be used in many different settings, um, but it is an earlier stage compound, so we, we, we need to do some more work on it. Any expectation when that might move to the clinic? Uh, we're not giving any guidance right now since we're so focused on advancing Marzeptocog Alpha and CB2679D into the registration studies next year, but we will be evaluating that over the next six months. Nassim Usman, President and CEO of Catalyst Biosciences. Nassim, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Daniel. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.